Welcome to Brain and a Vat. I'm joined by Jason Werbelov, and today we have uh, another international guest, uh, Dustin Crummett, who is based in Munich at the moment. He studied at the University of Notre Dame, um, and he's going to be talking to us um, in some detail about animal ethics. Uh, Dustin, can you give us a, a thought experiment? Sure. Um, so the, uh, the thought experiment is one that uh, comes from a paper written by the philosopher Alistair Norcross. There's the thought experiment. Your neighbor Fred has just been arrested for animal cruelty. Um, this is what happened. The police raided his house. They found that in his basement, he had dozens and dozens of puppies that he was breeding. He was keeping them in these very small cages. They couldn't even turn around. They were left to sort of stew in their own excrement. He subjected them to painful medical procedures. Um, they lived in misery throughout their whole lives. And then when the puppies get big enough, he killed them. This is what he was doing. Um, everybody, there's a big moral outcry. We all think Fred has been doing something absolutely horrific, right? And Fred says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, let me explain, let me explain. Uh, you, you don't understand. Fred is a sort of uh, like chocolate gourmand. He really, really loves chocolate. Not just that he likes the taste of chocolate. It's almost like a part of his identity, you know, sampling different kinds of fancy chocolates, all this sort of stuff, right? Um, Fred really feels like chocolate is a big part of his life. But unfortunately for Fred, a couple of years ago, he was in an accident. And uh, the accident had an odd effect. He got a little bit of brain damage. And this meant that he can no longer taste chocolate. When he eats it, it just tastes bland, mealy. Um, he can't get any of the enjoyment out of it that he used to. Um, and Fred learned after a long study, the only way for him to be able to enjoy chocolate again was to take a certain hormone called cocomone. Um, and unfortunately, this hormone is only produced in the brains of distressed puppies. Um, and that's why Fred was doing this. He had to raise these puppies uh, in order to harvest this hormone from their brains. Um, and now he can eat chocolate and he feels like his life's a lot better. Um, and Fred says, okay guys, so that's, that's, that's what it was. Now you know the full story. Um, and you can see why I did this. And of course we don't accept Fred's justification. We don't accept that at all. We don't think that that's anywhere nearly as good enough a reason uh, as you would need to take these animals and subject them to torment throughout their entire lives and then slaughter them and cut them up. Um, and in my experience, when I teach this to students, they all agree with this, unless they can see where the discussion is going. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, where is the discussion going? Of course, Norcross says, look, we all hate Fred. We think he's a moral monster. But most people in our society, the overwhelming majority of people in our society, do something morally equivalent to what Fred does. They eat animal products, which have been produced um, on factory farms, as the vast majority of uh, animal products are. Um, and the animals on these factory farms are treated just the way that uh, these puppies are treated. They're kept in terrible conditions and then they're slaughtered or, you know, what, whatever, it, depending on exactly whether you want milk or meat or whatever it is. Um, and so Norcross thinks uh, basically that uh, eating factory farmed animal products is morally equivalent to what Fred does. And so if we accept that Fred acts immorally, uh, then we should think that eating factory farmed animal products is, is similarly immoral. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the story. Dustin, it's, it's a really, it's a great thought experiment because um, I'm a huge chocolate lover. Um, <laughs> my, my life revolves, it, it orbits around chocolate. Um, 
and and I have been a vegetarian at times in my life. Um, I'm not now for reasons we'll get into later. Um, so I'm having these conflicting intuitions because I, I sympathize with Fred's predicament. <laughs> but at the same time, obviously, I share the intuition that, uh, you know, what Fred is doing is horrendous. Okay. Right. So I want to try and resist that intuition. Okay. So I want to throw some objections at you. Um, not necessarily that you are holding Norcross's position, but, but you might have some ideas on how Norcross would, would respond. Okay. So I, just one for now, one objection for now. Do you think there's a disanalogy between uh, the animals we eat and the puppies that are um, being harmed? Not in terms of uh, what happens to them, but in terms of the type of animal. So puppies um, are dogs, they're a tough dog and you know, young dogs and dogs uh, have a level of intelligence that perhaps a cow doesn't have. Um, and uh, or some of the other animals that we eat, um, and and the idea would be that if you were to change the thought experiment such that it wasn't baby puppy, there weren't puppies that your your neighbours torturing, but rather they're uh, they're they're little cows, they're calves that your I think baby cows or calves, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. So so if there were calves that that your that your baby uh, that that your neighbour was torturing, maybe we wouldn't have the same intuition in this case. And if we didn't have the same intuition, then it seems a bit uh, unfair of Norcross to use puppies um, because there is this difference between cows and dogs in, in their moral status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think there are kind of maybe two things to say. Um, one is that it depends a little bit on the animal. Um, so pigs probably actually are about as smart as dogs. Um, and people eat pigs and usually people don't have a problem with that. Um, so at least in the case of pigs, it looks like this intelligence-based disanalogy doesn't hold. Um, the other thing to say is on the one hand, yeah, we probably do have different intuitions if we make it pigs or chickens or whatever. That might be just because we've been desensitized to eating those, right, and mistreating them. Um, and I guess, sort of two things to say. One is that when people try to explain what the difference is, they appeal to intelligence, say, oftentimes the explanations don't actually seem plausible. We don't think, for instance, that Albert Einstein could eat normal people because he was so much smarter than that. You know, we don't think generally that being more intelligent even makes your interests inherently more important. You know, it might be that we should save him rather than another person because he'll invent some great, thing, you know, whatever. But, um, we don't think that it makes you directly deserving of more moral consideration. Um, uh, another thing is that if you actually show people like pictures of factory farms, a lot of times they do think, okay, that, that doesn't seem so good. Um, so in the right context, you actually can elicit the, the intuition that um, really, no, this doesn't seem okay. Uh, when you actually make people think about and look at how the animals are being treated. Um, so can I ask a follow-up question to that? So um, what do you think the difference is in our intuitions around cows versus dogs? If it's not intelligence, if that's not playing the role, what is the feature that is playing the role? And whatever that answer is, can't we appeal to that as the, the relevant disanalogy? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, Nor Norcross at, at one point considers um, the view, maybe puppies are more morally important because they're cuter. 
Um, since, <laughs> since, since they're just so cute, that means that you shouldn't eat them. But ugly animals, you can eat. Um, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, how about this? How about this as an option? What about uh, um, we enter into relationships with <laughs> dogs that we don't enter into with um, with cows? Yeah. So that, that might be morally relevant, at least in cases where you have a relationship with a certain animal, right? I think my cats are here in the room with me. Yeah, so I'm, I'm inclined to think that um, having a relationship with an animal could be morally significant. So for instance, it would be worse for me to eat my pet cats uh, than to eat some other random animal, right? Just like it might, might be worse for me to eat uh, my fiance than to eat some other random human being. <laughs> Um, but of course, that's not the only reason that it's wrong to eat human beings. And similarly, I don't think that's the only reason that it's wrong to eat uh, these other animals. And we can see this by thinking about a situation where maybe Fred is dogs that don't have a relationship with anybody. Or maybe Fred is part of a society where people just eat dogs normally and they don't have any particular relationships with them or they're hostile to them because, you know, some places they spread disease or whatever. Um, and so in, when we think about those cases, I think we can see that's not the sole reason uh, that what Fred does is bad. So someone may well respond that the problem that we have with Fred is that he is directly torturing these poor puppies uh, and that he is then morally culpable for the suffering that they endure. And that's very different from someone who merely consumes meat products. So if someone goes off to the grocery store and they go and buy a prepackaged steak, they can say, well, I didn't play any role in you know, killing that poor calf. You know, I'm just eating the meat. Mm -hmm. So it, it might be that uh, Fred has to be kind of crueler than an ordinary person, say, um, in order to do this himself. And that might affect how we morally evaluate him in some way. Um, but in general, if it's wrong for you to do something, then it's probably also going to be wrong for you to hire somebody else to do it. Um, for instance, if it's wrong for you to kill someone, it's going to be wrong for you to hire a hitman to kill them. Um, and in the same way, we can imagine, suppose that Fred had hired somebody else to breed these puppies, and then he bought the kokomone from them. Uh, that wouldn't be very much of a moral defense of Fred's actions. Um, and in a similar way, it doesn't seem like uh, the fact that the consumer is, is hiring somebody else to do this, uh, that doesn't seem like very much of a defense of the consumer's actions. So I wonder, I wonder whether there's not a nice response to that or a nice objection to that. Um, so let's, let's talk about the hitman analogy, right? So the hitman pays someone to kill, to, to kill someone and he's the person who pays the hitman, well, rather the, hit, the, the hitman doesn't pay anyone, but someone pays the hitman. The person who pays the hitman seems as culpable as, as the hitman himself, um, maybe even more so. Um, and, and that's the analogy here. But I wonder whether, I wonder whether, the analogy breaks down because in the hitman case, the person who you pay the hitman to kill isn't going to die if you don't pay the hitman. Whereas in this case, it seems like when, when we're talking about the slaughter of, of meat animals or farm animals, um, they are going to be slaughtered regardless of whether or not you pay for the package of meat at the supermarket. Um, so it seems like there's a counterfactual issue. Right. So does, um, does your buying the meat have any chance of making any difference? Um, and there are kind of two, two different questions that are involved here. Um, one is, can it help any currently existing animals? And after that, it seems like it might be no, because the animal that produced the meat that you buy, that animal is already dead. 
other animals on farms are going to explore what. In fact, we've seen this right now. There's been a big drop in demand in some places for meat because of the economic downturn. Animals just get slaughtered instead, um, and the meat is thrown out. Um, so you you can't help any currently existing animals, probably. Um, but it might be that by affecting demand, you can affect how many animals are factory farmed in the future. Um, now there's a further question, uh, which is sometimes called the causal impotence objection, um, which is, well, is there really even any chance of you doing that? Um, some people think, well, look, these, you know, the meat industry is this huge industry. We know that it's not perfectly efficient. It's not like because one less person buys a chicken, they're going to raise one fewer chicken. Um, and we, we get into complicated empirical arguments here about exactly how this works and exactly how you should respond to the risk. Um, clearly, if everybody gave up eating chicken, well, then they would raise fewer chickens. So there's got to be some point at which the number of chickens uh, raised will change. Um, and so, well, how do you know that you're not at that point? Um, and if there's some chance that you are, it might be that you could actually make, maybe there's a really small chance that you make a difference, but maybe you'll make a really big difference because, you know, the system just responds to these big shifts in demand. Um, and similarly, if you uh, know that, as is actually the case, more and more people are becoming vegans or vegetarians. I mean, that's actually the case in many societies, at least. Um, it could be that you help uh, this level be reached uh, faster. So do you think there's so, a parallel with the problem around voting? So if you think about the chances that you have of being able to vote for a party and get that party into power, given how many votes it would need, you know, the argument is that it's irrational to participate in that system because, you know, it's a million to, to one chance that your particular individual votes will be the one that makes the difference. But we know that, you know, collectively, you know, votes do matter, right? You know, parties do gain ascendancy because a lot of people vote for them. So you, you could take this view, which is that your individual action um, might be, uh, you know, irrelevant uh, and plays almost no role, um, but the collective action matters. And so you might think, for example, that refraining from eating meat you know, plays some role, but the more important role it would be in telling other people not to eat meat. As you say, what seems to be doing the work is a, a vegan movement, um, changing people's minds on mass, and that that's likely to do, to save some animal lives as opposed to your particular private action. Right. Yeah. And that's, I, I think there is definitely a parallel there. And there's a parallel not only with voting, but lots of other cases where, you know, in combating climate change or similar things where my actions probably are not going to make or break anything. But in cases where there are these collective obligations, how, you know, I as an individual can, can respond to that. Yeah, I, I think the, the voting example is very interesting. Um, I, wonder, I wonder whether... Um, Sorry, Dustin, you kept breaking out. So I caught half your answer and, and it was, it was really good. And then I got distracted by the, the breakup. Um, all right, let me just think for a moment. Sorry, Mark, there's going to be a bitch to edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So um, what I wanted to say is I, I wonder whether there's not an interesting 
parallel here to two different dimensions of utilitarianism. So one dimension of utilitarianism is distinguish, distinguishing be, between act and rule utilitarianism. So act utilitarianism is the view that your action is right just in case your action results in the best um, consequences for society as a whole. Uh, rule utilitarianism is your action is right if it were to be part of a general rule uh, that everyone behave in this way and has the best consequences, if that rule has the best consequences for society as a whole. So I wonder whether you're not relying on sort of a rule utilitarianism rather than act utilitarianism. I know that's probably not what you want to rely on. Um, and then there's this other dimension of probabilistic versus um, actual utilitarianism. So probabilistic utilitarianism is what is the probability of your action resulting in the best outcome for society as a whole? And perform that action that has the highest probability, even if it doesn't actually, um, versus actual utilitarianism, which is that, you know, does your action actually result in the best consequence, consequences for society as a whole? And that determines whether it's right or wrong. So on probabilistic utilitarianism, it seems like uh, it wouldn't really matter whether you eat the meat or not, because um, your the probability of your um, eating the meat or not eating the meat is not going to the probability is that it's not going to change the demand, um, you know, in the meat industry. I mean, it may actually, it may actually, but if you're a probabilistic utilitarian, which I am, I would say it's improbable. So it probably won't factor. So it sounds like you're trying to buy into two different types of distinctions between utilitarianism. Well, not rather buy into, but I, I wonder where your position falls along these two dimensions. So dimension one is the distinction between act and rule utilitarianism. So an act utilitarianism, an act utilitarian rather, says that your action is right just in case your action, your particular action, results in the best consequences for society as a whole. Versus a rule utilitarian who says that it's not your action that needs to result in the best consequences for society as a whole, but rather your the rule that encapsulates your action. So if your action was made into a rule and everyone performed that action, everyone performing that action, everyone performing that rule, that rule would result in the best consequences for society as a whole. So act versus rule utilitarianism. And your position seems to make more sense on rule utilitarianism than act utilitarianism, but rule utilitarianism isn't generally something that philosophers accept as readily as act utilitarianism. So that's the one question. The second question is, on the distinction between probabilistic utilitarianism um, and, um, and actual utilitarianism. So probabilistic utilitarians say that your action is right just in case at the time, given the information that you have at the time performing that action, it is highly probable that your action will result in the best consequences versus actual utilitarians, they say that it's the actual consequences of your action that determine whether it's right or wrong. And I was wondering um, on a probabilistic account whether you don't have a problem, which is that it seems improbable or unlikely, just like in the voting case, that you're getting that that package of meat is going to swing the difference between the meat industry scaling up or scaling down. Similarly to it's very improbable that your particular vote will uh, result in um, uh, the election being swayed one way or another. So I was wondering whether you're not relying on rule utilitarianism plus actual utilitarianism um, and whether that's a problem for your account. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think that I am. 
is the short answer, but um, it's worth um, discussing these different views and what you would say, depending on whether you accepted one or the other, right? So the, the initial thing that I said, I, I wanted to be um, more of a, an act utilitarian response. The idea was, even if your action uh, probably won't make a difference, it might make a really big difference. And so when you're thinking about whether to perform your action in isolation, maybe you shouldn't do it. Now, uh, if you're a rule utilitarian, you'll need to ask instead a question about uh, what would be what would happen if uh, people followed rules allowing them to purchase factory farm products or not allowing them to purchase factory farm products? Uh, and it looks like rules that didn't allow them to farm fa purchase factory farm products would produce better results because then there wouldn't be all this factory farming. Um, so if you're a rule utilitarian, I do think it's easier because you don't even need to get into this stuff about you know the expected consequences of your action and all that sort of stuff. You can just say, look, it's going to be best in general if people don't do this and so blah, blah, blah. Um, so I don't think you need to be a rule utilitarian or a, a rule consequentialist or whatever, um, even though it sort of makes the argument a little easier. Now, um, probabilistic utilitarianism versus actual utilitarianism. Um, I, I actually wanted what I originally said to be more in line with probabilistic utilitarianism, I think. So... Uh, if you're a probabilistic utilitarian, you're not just going to um, ask what is likely to have the best consequences. You're going to ask uh, what the expected utility of each option is. So uh, the various uh, harms or benefits that might follow multiplied by the probability that they'll follow. So it might be that um, I shouldn't go visit grandma right now because even though I'm quite sure that I'm not infected with the coronavirus, if I was and I didn't know it, that could be really bad. She could die, right? So there's a small chance of a really big harm. Um, and what I wanted to suggest was in the case where you uh, purchase the factory farmed animal product, it might be that you're really unlikely to have a bad consequence. But if you do, it might be a really big bad consequence because uh, you cause the uh, the industry to produce thousands of new chickens, or if you refrain, you might prevent them from producing thousands of new chickens, right? Um, now, if you're an actualist utilitarian, then you're gonna say, what matters is what will actually happen if I do this. Um, and then, uh, well, if actually nothing bad would happen, it would be fine, which is probably the case. Um, if it, uh, if I actually do affect what happens, then it's going to be really bad. Um, and of course, somehow, and that's sort of all there is to say if you're an actualist utilitarian, but somehow I still need to make a decision, right? Um, and uh, actualist utilitarianism often, in terms of how I should go about making decisions, that's going to look pretty similar to what the probabilistic utilitarian thinks. Even the, in, a, in a way, the, whether my action is really right is unknowable but I'm gonna to have to go through this sort of expected utility uh, reasoning anyway uh, for purposes of, a, a, as a decision procedure, even though it's not a, a criterion of rightness. So um, I, I think that in terms of what they advise you to do, uh, they'll wind up being similar, even if they wind up diverging about whether that turns out really to have been the right thing. So is there another distinction that we can draw? Um, you've talked about factory farming. 
Um, and so some people might say, well, factory farming sounds very cruel. You've got all these uh, chickens, you know, cooped up in cages and, um, you know, pigs sort of all stuffed together. But um, what if we can separate out the killing from the cruelty? So a lot of people sort of think about, you know, the Farmer Brown case who, you know, lovingly raises the chickens, you know, until they reach a kind of a plump age, but they, you know, lead their best possible lives uh, on the farm. And then they get uh, humanely slaughtered in their sleep. Um, uh, is is that less of a concern, and would it uh, would it justify uh, eating those Farmer Brown chickens? Yeah, I, I think that has to be less of a concern because I mean, there's at least one thing that's really bad about factory farming that you're causing all this pain and suffering that is not present or is reduced in the humane farming case. Okay, um, now, but is humane farming okay? I guess there are sort of two things to say. Um, one of which is just practical and the other is the philosophical thing. The practical thing to say is that I worry sometimes this becomes a little bit of a red herring because humane farming really is, is such a marginal, I mean, it's such a small percentage of the animal products that people consume. Um, and sometimes you'll start talking to people about factory farming and give them this argument that they shouldn't consume factory farm products. And then they try to, they try to figure out how in principle meat eating could be okay by appealing to humane farming but they're not actually going to only eat humane meat from now on. They're going to keep doing what they were doing as though somehow proving that meat eating in principle could be justified, justifies what they actually do. And of course that, that wouldn't fall away. Um, so it's, it's important that it not distract from the kind of urgent practical question about factory farming, which is where most animal products come from. Um, but given that, um, what should we think about humane farming? Um, and Honestly, I think that this becomes really difficult because we have to um, we have to answer certain moral questions, who uh, which are such that we're not sure about the answers even in ordinary cases involving human beings. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, you might think, well, look, humane farming, at least for me, kills the animal when the animal could have kept living, could have kept having a nice life. Uh, um, on the other hand, you might think, wait a minute, though, if not for humane farming, this animal wouldn't exist to begin with. So maybe humane farming is actually good because uh, when you have humane farming, that means that there are additional animals in the world who have nice lives. They do die sooner than they would have, but it's better to live for a while uh, than to not live at all, surely. So humane farming is actually a good thing. Um, and uh, then we, we get into this broader set of questions about um, when uh, practices can wrong people uh, or whether practices can wrong people if the practice is responsible for that person's existence and their life is good on balance. So you could imagine we run humane baby farms uh, and these babies wouldn't exist. We have, they have nice lives for the you know, year that they're on the farm. People play with them, they have those mobiles and they giggle and stuff. And then we painlessly kill the babies and eat them and feast on their delicious uh, baby meat. Um, that wouldn't seem good, but it looks like you can say the same thing. Well, look, these, these babies wouldn't exist otherwise. Surely it's better to have a short, nice life than to have no life. Um, and, uh, this gets into this much broader set of questions surrounding the so-called non-identity problem, 
um, these situations where uh, I take an action that uh, affects somebody in the future um, and it seems like the action is wrong, but on the other hand, they wouldn't even exist if I didn't take it and their life seems worth living. And this comes up, for instance, in environmental ethics too. Should we conserve resources for future people? Well, uh, if we don't, then different people are going to be born. So who did we hurt? You know, the future people who live in a resource depleted world, they wouldn't exist if, if we had enacted the environmentally friendly policy. And so, um, and so I, I honestly, um, may, maybe this answer wasn't as tight as I would have hoped, but I, I, I suppose the moral is, I think humane farming, uh, it's hard to know what to say about it because it, it gets into um, issues in ethics more broadly, which are very difficult and which we don't understand very well. So I wonder if we put aside the, <clears throat> the issue of humane farming, because as you say, humane farming is the rare exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. um, and let's, let's rather ask the question, if it's a choice purely between bringing animals into existence in traditional farming rather than in humane farming, so traditional meat farming, um, so bringing those animals into existence versus not bringing them into existence at all, um, which is preferable? Right. So I'm, I'm inclined to think that that is easier because I'm inclined to think that at least lots of animals on factory farms have lives that are not worth living. Um, it seems plausible that if your life is going to be really bad, it would actually be better for you if you weren't born at all uh, than if you're born and have this really bad life. Um, so uh, in, in that case, I'm inclined to think... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually bad to bring them into existence because their lives are, are worse than nothing. Um, yeah, I was, I, I was hoping you wouldn't give that answer um, <laughs> because, because obviously if you gave the opposite answer, you'd be in trouble, right? Yeah. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to hold that position. Um, okay, all right. So, so I mean, uh, for the viewers and listeners, I, I believe, I, I agree with Dustin if that's the position he holds, that it is immoral to eat animals, to eat meat. Um, but I do eat meat. And the reason why I eat meat is because I think that it's not the case that you always should do the right thing. So the idea is basically that there are competing values in life. And one of those values is morality. And I think an argument like the puppy argument, Norcraft's um, puppy argument, captures quite well why it is immoral to eat meat. But it might still be the case that even if it's immoral to eat meat, that shouldn't outweigh other values. So there might be other values like perfection, that we must live as perfect a life as possible. And I know that as soon as I say perfection, a lot of people say, well, perfection is important. But the kind of perfection I'm talking about here is um, living as full a life as possible in as rounded a way as possible, such that no given value in your life out, out crowds or or outweighs all the others too much. So um, this idea comes from an article by Susan Wolf um, called Moral Saints. And she asked the question, what would life be like if you were a moral saint? If you did the perfectly moral thing all the time, so, for example, um, she, she lists a whole bunch of things that you would be unable to do. Um, you wouldn't be able to watch a movie. Why? Because during the time that you, could be that you would be watching the movie, you could be helping people, 
right? And, and the perfectly moral person would do that. Uh, you wouldn't have time uh, to sit and eat a beautiful meal um, because during that time, again, you could be helping people, but also that food that you're eating, you don't need all that food. Uh, you could give most of that food to other people who need it more than you do. Um, you couldn't really have time to maintain very strong human relationships because during that time you could be helping a lot of other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You couldn't learn how to play tennis. Um, you know, so she lists a whole bunch of things that you would be unable to do, but she thinks are still valuable. And she calls those perfections. And morality is one perfection amongst many others, but there's lots of perfections we have in life. And the idea is that we don't want any given perfection to outweigh all the others. And we don't want morality to rule our lives completely. So the idea would be on a perfectionist view, um, you want to do the moral thing some of the time um, and you don't want to perform heinous actions. Um, but the idea would be that um, eating meat is not so bad that it meets that threshold. Um, so it's okay on a perfectionist um, view of the world because it's not so bad. And one way of cashing out how it's not so bad would be on that probabilistic um, calculation that you gave us earlier. So the idea is that it is, there is a very small probability that your action will influence a very large outcome, right? And if you multiply the very small probability by the very large outcome, it does give you, you know, a weighted value that is relevant, but perhaps not high enough to justify um, stopping, to, you know, no, no longer eating meat. Because when you stop eating meat, you might sacrifice other perfections. So one of the perfections would be enjoying a nice meal. Another perfection could be enjoying um, the company of others who really enjoy eating meat and enjoy eating it around you. Um, so, you know, Susan Wolf might say um, that if you stop eating meat, you're becoming less perfect. And so it's the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there are maybe um, three, three things to say about that. Um, so the first is just about the setup. So one, one of the ways that you motivated Wolf's position is by saying, well, morality would require that you spend all of your free time doing charitable work and so on. Um, of course, a lot of people think that there is um, an important disanalogy between uh, inflicting harm and allowing harm or failing to prevent harm. Um, and so uh, you might think, for instance, that, yeah, you're not obligated to spend all of your free time volunteering uh, to try to, say, save lives, uh, people in poor nations, but uh, you're still not allowed to go kill people um, because uh, inflicting harm somehow is worse than allowing harm. Um, if you think that, um, then uh, you might not have quite as much of the, uh, the motivation for adopting Wolf's position because morality doesn't seem quite as demanding. But um, at the same time, this prohibition against inflicting harm, or at least doing so without a very good reason, uh, might count strongly against consuming factory farm products because there it does look like you're, you're causing harm to be brought about in some way, right? So that's just one, one thing to say. Um, and then the other two things to say, one is, I guess, more conciliatory and the other is less conciliatory. Um, the more conciliatory thing is, uh, it, it might be that um, this could still, even your position um, might allow for a kind of like reducitarian approach. Um, it might be that 
uh, you know, living a nice, well-rounded life, even if it requires, you know, when you're at the fancy restaurant and a dish is made with butter or whatever, you know, it would be overly scrupulous or whatever. Um, it might still be that you don't need to be eating meat every day in order to live that kind of life. Um, and in fact, it might even detract from you in some ways, make you less healthy and so on. Um, so it, it might be that practically speaking, your view would still, um, would still commend uh, significantly reducing the amount of animal products you eat, um, even if you don't go whole hog. Um, I also, uh, uh, another, another approach, this is relevant to this point, um, one, one strategy that I, I actually have a, a paper that I co-authored with um, Rebecca Chan called Moral Indulgences. Um, so some, some people in the uh, effective altruist community have um, defended the strategy where they say, look, um, there are uh, animal welfare charities like the Humane League, Animal Equality, that can do a lot of good with a small amount of resources um, because uh, you, uh, you know, they're, they're running these big campaigns that try to get institutions to treat animals better, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so actually, if you say donate a couple hundred dollars to them every year, you'll do a lot more good than if you give up uh, animal products yourself. So then you kind of get the best of both worlds, assuming that you value animal products more than you value this money that you give away. Um, and this, this also gets tricky because sometimes we think you can offset harms and sometimes we don't, and we don't have a super good theory. But um, I, I think that, um, yeah, one, one thing, your approach might be, um, uh, it might play well with that, that kind of approach. Yeah, okay, have some, but make up for it in this other way. Okay. Um, the, the, the third thing to say is um, you, you granted, yeah, okay, you, you shouldn't do particularly heinous acts. There are sort of limits um, to how immoral you can be um, while living a, a perfected, well-rounded life, et cetera. Um, and it, you might question whether eating factory farmed animal products really falls below the, the heinous level. I mean, you particularly, over the course of your life, at least in terms of expected utility, you're going to be causing a huge amount of harm. You're participating in this overall system that maybe is, is the worst or one of the worst atrocities ever committed by people. If you think about, you know, tens and tens of billions of animals being kept in these really bad conditions over time. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's obvious that it falls below the, the heinousness line. Um, so that's, I think that's sort of those, those three things are, are what I have to say about that. So a couple of other thoughts on the topic. Um, so if we're thinking about these other values that are important, it seems like one of them might be um, the aesthetic pleasure of eating meat. Another one might be some sense of social harmony that you would have. So if you get invited to a dinner party um, and you arrive and they've made this big roasted chicken, um, you know, and if you say, look, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat your, your murder food, you know, it could cause this, this harmony. Um, and so, you know, Jason's going to say that leading a perfect life means this balancing act. And, and I wonder if um, both of those sort of other considerations have changed significantly over time. So it might very well have been the case that if you were a vegetarian 20 years ago, uh, that, that would have caused a lot of disharmony and people would have thought that there was something very odd about you. Whereas, you know, now you can go to a fast food restaurant in South Africa and in the States and you can order a vegetarian burger. 
it was also the case that um, you know vegetarian options used to taste like cardboard, uh, or that you were kind of given mm. something that was you know given with the steak. So you get your your cream spinach and carrots. You know now you have something like the Beyond Burger, you know which tastes uh, you know very very close um, to what a, a meat burger would taste like. So much so that um, you know people have um, been duped into thinking that they were eating meat when when they've been substituted at uh, Burger King and things like that. So and then on the this harmony front, it seems like people are much more accommodating nowadays. And furthermore, that those situations where you, you go to their place and, you know, say, look, I don't eat meat. Um, you know, it might open up a conversation as to why you don't eat meat. And you might have this sort of slow um, political change that happens one dinner party at a time. And you might think that part of perfection at least involves some kind of moral obligations and to spread a, a moral message would make you a, a better person. I mean, I think the other distinction that you draw between um, what is morally required of you and what would be good or supererogatory is important. So to say that, you know, utilitarians often struggle to draw this distinction because they just think, well, what matters is maximizing the good. Um, and, you know, as Jason points out, that when you collapse the distinction, you wind up sacrificing your entire life and that seems like a problem. But not everyone has to bite that bullet. They can just refrain from performing immoral actions, even if they don't take steps to do things that are actively good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think that I pretty much agree agree with all of that. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a, a great deal to object to there. Yes, I mean, I, I feel like I'm in the room with two vegetarians. So, <laughs> 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 so, so I'm going to I'm gonna I, I'm gonna. Th- fire some objections off at both your points, if that's okay. All right. So I want to, I want to uh, engage with your first response to Wolf. Um, So you said that um, it would be kind of consistent with um, a reduction approach in eating meat. Um, And I think, I think that's right. uh, Perhaps. Um, But, but I mean, you relied there on the notion that um, a utilitarian doesn't have to, um, go in for the full hog of the best possible action. Um, you know, they can just perform the not immoral action would be good enough. Or, or you can draw the distinction between, um, or Mark made that point, but you made the point of um, directly causing harm versus allowing harm to happen. And allowing harm to happen doesn't seem as bad as directly causing harm. Um, and so if directly causing harm is the problem, uh, then that could, reduce your perfection and it seems like eating the meat might be you know directly causing harm in some way um so i I was wondering i was wondering whether there's not a a decent response here um by saying that if you look at wolf's on her behalf if you look at wolf's argument she's saying a moral saint isn't just someone who does the right thing all the time um, but they do the moral thing to the utmost degree right so Mm -hmm. they are the perfect they're morally perfect they could not be better so she she says that the the moral saint is by definition always performing the supererogatory action, and her argument is just that well it seems like that's not the kind of person you should become because they're going to live this very empty life in many ways other than mor- morality, um, and then she works backwards from there, or rather maybe I am. So I'm saying okay, so if if that is not the kind of life we want to live then that means that there must be some values other than morality that are playing a role in the kind of life we should lead. Um, and, and those values would have to be values other than morality. <coughs> and, uh, 
the, the value that I'd be, you know, referring to is perfection or aesthetics. Um, and meat is going to help in that regard. And I thought Mark provided kind of like a two edged sword argument there because he said, well, on the one hand, people are more understanding, um, about, about you not eating meat around them. So there's less of a problem now than there was 20 years ago. But on the other hand, um, uh, meat, uh, uh, you know, on the other hand, maybe there's, there's some issues still, you know, not everyone will be totally understanding. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not clear that, that meat is always going to provide, uh, um, you know, uh, no more utility or no more perfection in those situations. Um, so I just, I, basically, I want to say there that there's still some other value at play and that value needs to be taken into account. Okay. So that's, that's the first, that's the first part of my attack, right? Mm-hmm. The second part of my attack, which relates to it is this idea that I, I don't intuitively buy that the meat industry is one of the greatest, most heinous crimes of humanity um, in the last, you know, in the recent, in our recent history. Um, and why is that? Well, we have to ask the question, okay, while we can hold the intuition that it seems bad to farm animals, although not everyone does hold that intuition, but I, I agree with that intuition. It seems bad. Now we need to calculate how bad. So if you're a, a, a crude hedonist, then you think that what is good or bad for you is pleasure or pain. And it seems like animals can suffer pain just like we can. And so it seems like it's very bad to treat an animal uh, the way we treat them in a, in a, in a, in a farm factory. Okay. But some people are not crude hedonists. They're, they're more sophisticated hedonists where they think that there's different levels of suffering and pleasure that require different levels of intelligence and self-awareness. So there's a difference between physical pain and anxiety, for example. Um, and if you were to treat a human the way we treat an animal, that human is going to suffer additional types of suffering in addition to physical pain. They're going to suffer a form of anxiety that we're not sure that animals can suffer. Um, So it seems like it would be worse to treat the human that way than it would be to treat the animal that way. So it would be a more heinous crime. So what I want to basically do is say, while I still accept that farming animals is a bad thing, um, it might not be as bad as you're, you're making it out to be. And so these other perfections, these other values start to gain more of a foothold. And through time, you know, if you think about it enough, you might say, okay, even if, if I shouldn't eat meat as often, it's still okay to eat meat some of the time, or perhaps it's okay to eat meat all the time because it's not that bad in action. Um, yeah, so it's a two-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'll, I'll, take the, I'll take the second one first, I guess. Um, so it, it might be that, um, you know, ver- various harm, if you were to say treat a human being in the way that factory farmed animals are treated, that would be worse. Um, maybe because you think that human well-being is inherently more important, or maybe because you think it's worse for the person because they can suffer in ways that the factory farmed animal won't. Um, and I think at least the second of those is, is probably pretty plausible, right? Um, so then, then we have a question about, okay, so how do we weigh this extra suffering that happens to humans versus, um, you know, the, the large amounts of physical suffering that uh, are uh, inflict- physical and maybe simple psychological suffering that are inflicted on chickens and so on. Um, you could have two views. One would be that uh, the, the higher pain has something like lexical priority. Um, 
the anxiety faced by a human being is worse than any amount of, uh, you know, mere physical pain or whatever. And I, I think that that's really implausible. Um, and we, we can talk more about that, but it seems like maybe you agree that. Um, so the, the other would be, no, it's, it's not lexically uh, more important. It's not in principle always more important. It's just that, you know, it's a factor you have to take into account. Um, and that's, yeah, okay, so that seems plausible. Um, but then when we take that into account, um, is it really going to mean that factory farming is not that bad as compared to other things? Um, and I'm skeptical about that because, you know, even if physical pain and sort of simple psychological stress and whatever, that's still awfully bad. Um, and when you think about it happening to tens of billions of animals uh, over time, that's really going to add up, you know. Um, our, our intuitions about large numbers are often not very reliable. We kind of underestimate, you know, when you're trying to think about billions and billions of individuals, like how, how many people you're really, how many animals you're really thinking about. Um, but I think if we try to step back and think about this rationally, billions, that, that's going to be awfully bad, at least bad enough that it's really bad in the aggregate, even if you don't think it's the worst thing that people have done or something like that. Okay. Um, now, the... Um, the, the second point uh, was, was more directly about the, the wolf stuff. Um, so, um, and I, I should say, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, that I'm, I'm not a very strict vegetarian. Um, so I'm not, I, I mean, I That's do eat animal products occasionally. So, I'm, you know, I'm not um, fanatical about this, even though sometimes I think that maybe I should be fanatical. I'm more fanatical about it than I am. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I, so I, I actually had sort of wanted the, two of the things I said to be independent. One was the reducitarian stuff. The other was the cause, causing allowing harm stuff. And I, I wanted those um, <clears throat> to some extent to be able to work each without the other. So part of my thought behind the reducitarian argument was just that, look, in order to live a perfect, well-rounded life, you don't need to eat a whole bunch of meat or a whole bunch of other animal products. Um, so uh, even if you think that, uh, perfection can trump morality. Um, I don't think that justifies eating a whole bunch of meat because you just don't need that much meat in order to live a perfect, well-rounded life, even if you need some or whatever. Okay. Um, the, the other part, so yeah, you, you made a good point, which I didn't, I didn't address initially, which is, um, look, uh, Wolf is talking about the person who not only always does what they're obligated to do, but always does the best thing, the super rogatory, they go above and beyond the call of duty, right? Um, yeah, so that's, that's good. Um, and uh, you, you might think though that uh, even if the person living a perfected, well-rounded life won't be like that, they will live up to what they're obligated to do, or at least to their really strong obligations. Um, and you might think, it's pretty plausible that don't cause serious harm. That's an obligation, that's a strong obligation, even if you're not obligated to spend all of your free time doing charitable work and so on. Um, and if we think that, then it might still be that, uh, yeah, you, you have these strong obligations not to uh, inflict suffering through buying factory farm manual products and so on. Um, and that that, that will, uh, yeah, that, yeah, you, you can see where, where it's going, so. Yeah, I, so what I'd want to do is chip away at the heinousness through a few factors. So the one would be the low probability of your act influencing 
this horrendous overall picture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your act of buying the meat. Um, so, so I want to chip away at it with low probability, plus um, uh, the 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 lower order suffering that these animals are inflict that's inflicted upon them. Um, I agree, it's not going to be lexical. Um, so, in other words, their suffering is just a difference of degree rather than a difference of category. Um, and that that degree does count for something, um, but but it still is less than it would be for something like a human. Um, and then with those two features plus uh, plus Wolf's idea that you don't always have to do the right thing, um, at least when it's not a strong obligation, um, you know, through these gradual chippings away, uh, try and narrow down that number or reduce that number, that negative utility number associated with eating meat. Um, or, and I don't want to reduce the negative number. I want to increase the negative. <laughs> you get, I'm, I want to bring it closer to zero, in other words. Um, so, so I think what, what a lot is going to rest on here is the calc, right? We need, to, we need to look at the calc. What are the actual probabilities? What is the actual you know, amount of suffering involved? And if it's not possible to do that, if we can't do the calc, that would be a problem, I think. Um, and I'm not sure who the problem is for, whether it's for the person who's eating the meat or for the person who says you shouldn't eat the meat. I imagine it's more for the person who says you shouldn't because maybe the burden lies on them. Um, and yeah, that's going to be an issue. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. So, I mean, suppose we, we can't have very much certainty, even about the level of uncertainty. You know, we're, we're very uncertain about the expected, expected utility. I mean, does, does, that, does that break in either direction? So it, it might be what you said, well, the burden is on the person who thinks it's wrong. Um, you might instead endorse some kind of precautionary principle. Well, you shouldn't do things that might be seriously wrong. And, you know, if you're not really sure how to, you know. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not obvious to me that it, it adds a, a, a particular burden either way. Um, the, the hope would be, I guess, that you could somehow build your second order uncertainty into the, the overall uncertainty calculation and come up with some kind of broad, uh, you know, broad way of coming up with an expected utility calculation. Um, so that, that gets us into some other issues in epistemology and uh, you know, so on. Um, but, so thus far we've been talking from a utilitarian framework and there might be another way of thinking about the problem, which is instead of thinking about pleasure and pain to rather think about rights and who is endowed with rights. And so a rights theorist might say, well, the only beings that get rights are those that are rational. Um, and they might say maybe those beings that will one day become rational. So they might say, look, we accept that a, a newborn baby is not rational. Um, but in the ordinary course of events, it will become a person with rationality, whereas the chicken is never going to develop the, those functions, and therefore the chicken gets no rights, um, and whether it suffers is besides the point. Um, all that matters is whether it has a right to life, and because it's not rational, uh, it doesn't. Mm. So I, I think there are a, a couple of things to say about that. Um, one is that if, if we take the view that only human beings have rights and we take the view that, uh, you know, the, the only way to act wrongly is to violate a right, um, that is going to lead to, for instance, the claim that what Fred does is okay. 
um, you know, it will lead to the claim that if I were to say skin my cats alive and eat them, uh, then that would be morally permitted. You know, you might worry about it, but at least that, that wouldn't directly, directly aid in um, And that, that seems very implausible to me. Um, I, I think it, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's so implausible that our moral treatment of animals doesn't matter in itself at all, that that would itself be a sufficient reason to reject that kind of framework. Um, now, uh, the, the other things to say are that you might question both of the assumptions, both the assumption that only humans have rights uh, and the assumption that um, the only way to act wrongly is by violating them. Um, so, uh, I mean, when, when we think about why humans have rights, um, you noted, well, of course, uh, babies don't, um, babies don't have, uh, babies aren't rational. Um, well, okay, so we need to accord them rights because they will be rational someday. But of course, some babies will not be rational someday because they're born with some sort of uh, cognitive disability or something. Um, so then you say, uh, well, okay, um, uh, maybe it's just you're the kind of thing that, that would be rational if things uh, function properly and so on. And that's how we get babies in. Um, and then I ask, well, okay, so, but do more rational people have more rights? Are their interests more? And you say, well, no, it's sort of a threshold of rationality. I mean, you know, ravens or, you know, animals have a little bit of rationality. Maybe they can figure some stuff out. But uh, if you go above a certain threshold, um, or you, you know, you would go above the threshold uh, if everything was, you're the kind of thing that uh, if everything was working properly, you would be above this threshold. That's what gives you rights. Um, and we can kind of keep doing that. And uh, I guess at a certain point you have to ask, okay, once you've added all of these qualifications, well, it's the kind of thing you are and there's a threshold and blah, blah, blah. And once you're above the threshold, it doesn't matter. There's like a sharp break. Um, you have to wonder, is there any motivation for this view of rights besides the fact that you want to keep eating animals, you know? Um, and uh, I kind of feel like, well, I mean, it doesn't really seem like there is. Um, if you were principled, then you're either going to accord rights only to some human beings and not others, and we don't want to do that, or you're going to wind up extending rights to animals, I think. Um, there, there's also uh, this further question. I mean, you might, you might hold the view that um, only human beings have rights, but that you, it's still wrong to, uh, say, cause unnecessary suffering to animals. So Robert Nozick talks about this view that he calls utilitarianism uh, for animals, communism for people. Uh, so the view there is that communism is for people, human beings have rights. But utilitarianism is true for animals. Um, they don't have rights, but it's still bad to uh, do things that cause them uh, serious suffering unless you have some other reason. Um, uh, Dustin, and, can, I, can I ask you to repeat from Robert Nozick because you broke up there for a bit? Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, so Nozick has this view, uh, which he calls uh, utilitarianism for animals, Kantianism for people. Um, and the idea behind this view is supposed to be human beings have rights. Um, animals don't have rights, 
but it's your actions still can be morally wrong if they cause them unnecessary suffering without a sufficiently good reason and so on. Um, so if, if you hold something like that view, uh, you could hold the view that only human beings have rights, but that it's still um, wrong for you to uh, do, do things that cause significant suffering to animals if you don't have some good reason to. It's quite a clever solution. I actually haven't heard that solution. Um, so what happens then when it comes to humans? Do they only have rights or do they also have utility, utility in addition? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the idea is they have utility in addition, but the, the rights function as side constraints. So oh, I see. Right, it, right, right, right. It does still matter how you affect the well-being of human beings, but there are certain things you can't do to them because they have rights against them, even if that would increase utility. Whereas in your treatment of animals, there aren't side constraints, but you still have to worry about how you're affecting their well-being. So I've got a question for you, Dustin, which is a bit of an unfair question, um, which is what do you think the strongest objection to Norcroft's argument is? Oh, um, Hmm, that's a good question. It it might be it might be some of the the causal impotence stuff, just because there are some you know legitimate empirical questions there, and um, even though I I don't think that that is likely to work, you know you you can imagine how maybe that could turn out to work if the empirical uh, the empirical facts turned out the right way, and it turned out that. Uh, you know, the ethical facts don't require you to act in a way that's collectively best, but only to consider the consequences of your action isolation. You know. So um, just to clarify, the causal impotence is where it's basically saying that your action may not make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if it turned out that uh, the probability was low enough um, that the, the expected utility of doing it wasn't very bad, um, I don't think it immediately follows that it would be okay to do it, but there are plausible ethical theories according to which it might be okay to do it in that case. So if we add, you know, I'm, I'm trying desperately to, to resolve this before I go have dinner. So if, <laughs> if we add causal impotence uh, plus uh, lower order suffering in animals than humans, plus uh, Wolf's argument that, you know, you shouldn't always do the right thing, that there's some kind of threshold, uh, which is lower than the usual utilitarian threshold would be, um, maybe I can have my steak. Uh, well, I, I, I said that would be the best, the best way to argue for that. Uh, <laughs> I know you can't say yes. It's a good way. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. It depends right. on how, how strong the maybe is, I guess. Um, okay. I just, want, I just want our listeners and our viewers to have a way out uh, so that they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't immediately go and become vegetarians, because I do think that would be a loss to the world. Well, Jason, let me give you another case. So let's try and think about your model about competing pleasures and you know all these other things that would make your life more enjoyable. And let's imagine that you have uh, a sexual deviant who preys on, uh, let's say, the the severely mentally challenged. Okay, so the person goes off to. Um, these sort of welfare homes and sexually molest these people. Um, but they're kind of unaware of it, you know, because of the degree of mental impairment that they have. Uh, he derives some level of uh, joy out of it, let's say even a great level of joy. Um, and when we're sort of comparing the amount of suffering that they have 
you know, we might think, well, you know, overall, uh, it's not so bad. And this person's deriving this great joy out of it. You know, do we give them a pass? Um, do we say, well, it's okay to go around, you know, uh, molesting this group of people? Yeah, I mean, you really put me in a hard <laughs> position here because, you know, biting the bullet on that question is, you know, obviously going to be extremely unattractive. Um, yeah, okay. So I Not think as unattractive this is something- as those mentally challenged people. <laughs> No, that might be beautiful, Mark. <laughs> so, so let's, I, this, this brings up a point that I actually wanted to raise with uh, Dustin, which is that we haven't really taken into account character much. Um, we've looked from a utilitarian perspective. We looked from a rights perspective or Kantian perspective. Um, but I wonder about this idea of character, um, this idea that the kind of person um, who rapes people um, who, who are mentally challenged, um, it speaks very poorly of their character. And so I might be appealing to something like a virtue ethics position. Um, and the idea is that it wouldn't be as bad to eat meat um, for various reasons. One of them might be the, the, um, the visceralness of the action, you know, that um, eating the meat, although it's a visceral act, isn't the same as killing the animal. Killing the animal is a much more visceral act, a much more direct act, and kind of speaks differently about my character um, versus, uh, you know, the person who rapes uh, um, a mentally challenged person. They, their character uh, seems to be at risk. Or not at risk, but their character is, is poor. There's something wrong with their character. So I wonder whether the virtue ethicist can't escape the problem. Not so easy for the utilitarian. All right, so let's, let's travel down that, that path together. So let's assume that our um, person... I have a terrible feeling about this, Mark. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> when you say things like that, I feel like I'm in for a hiding. But go for it. <laughs> well, let's, let's imagine our, our person with a vicious character is not causing any harm because let's assume... Uh, it's coma patients or something, you know, so they, they're, they're not going to experience any harm. But we think even though this person isn't harming them and these beings have no rights, there's still something outrageous on a character level that it's a vicious character trait. And therefore, to be that person would be bad. But let's assume what they did was they, they set up a live stream um, and they, they videoed themselves molesting the, the coma patients. And so you weren't doing it yourself, but you were an avid consumer of the live stream content we might think, well, you're not as bad or as vicious as this guy, but there's still a character problem with you um, for, for watching this and deriving some level of pleasure from it. And that might be analogous to the meat-eating case. So the fact that you're enjoying the meat while fully knowing that it's connected to you know, uh, deep harms might show you know, uh, how poor your character is. Yeah, that sounds like a good objection to me. And I think that your reasoning is good. Uh, so in other words, I think that it is true that there's a good analogy between watching the live stream and consuming the, the meat from the store versus uh, actually molesting um, the, the mentally challenged people um, and eating the animal. I think, I think that is interesting. Um, Sure. I think what I'd want to say is that I've got to appeal to this idea that the actual molestation of mentally challenged people is a lot worse than, than killing the animal. And so the, the, the one step away of watching the live stream versus, um, versus you know, buying the, the store-kept meat um, is, 
those also also different because you know the original acts don't they carry different values of harm or different different moral statuses why that is the case why they carry different moral statuses is very hard to cash out um i i don't know i mean that's a very interesting question um i don't know maybe 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 dustin can throw me a bone uh yeah, I mean, I need some reason for arguing, you know, why. Mark's objection is very clever because Mark is saying, well, if, if uh, what matters is the amount of self-awareness and intelligence you have, um, well, then the mentally challenged person would be equivalent to the farm animal. But that seems wrong, right? That, that, they, they don't seem equivalent. I still think there's more value associated with the mentally challenged person. Do um, you think, what if, what if you were watching a live stream of somebody... Um, you know, skinning cats, so. Yeah, that's, okay, okay, okay. That's a very good question because that lends itself to a different kind of answer to Mark's objection. Um, because it seems like watching a live stream of people skinning cats is a lot worse than eating them. But I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, you, you might think that it's because it, it's sort of sadistic in a particular way. Maybe you're Mm. you know taking pleasure directly in the sun but it, it that might not be the case i mean maybe mm. you know. well it might i think that's a good point it depends why you take the pleasure so if you take the pleasure because the animal is suffering that's different from taking the pleasure despite their suffering yeah but it, it's still might be a problem like it would be a problem if you were taking it despite the suffering um well, maybe that, the person yeah. is, is painting some cool painting with their blood as, as he skins them and that's really you know the art is what you're uh, enjoying. You would like it better if the animals were anesthetized, but they're not. Um, that still seems like a, a character problem mm. uh, to me, at least. Yes, but it seems different. It seems yeah. like a different. It, it does character. seem different um, from yeah. from a character perspective, at least. Mm. Mark, have we gone some way to engaging with your issue? Yeah. So I wonder if the problem that you're highlighting really is just one of prejudice. So this is cashed out literature as speciesism which is that we just think that human beings are more important in virtue of them being human, not in virtue of their nature. So if I give you uh, the person who is, well, let's say the human being who is, has the same capacity for suffering or cognition as the animal, and you say, well, we prioritize human beings because they're human, you know, that might start to look like other kinds of arbitrary prejudices. So, you know, if you say, well, it's okay to have, um, you know, slaves from Indochina, but, you know, not from North America. And I say, why? And you go, well, because of the region that they're from, you know, that just seems to be arbitrary. Um, and so if you can't cash out the relevant difference between, you know, the severely mentally challenged, you know, human being and the animal, um, it, you know, the argument is that, well, really, it's just a matter of prejudice. Um, and that's not an acceptable reason. So there's an interesting um, article. I think it's by Bernard Williams, but Dustin might correct me. Um, and it yeah, basically, yeah, it he, he, he argues about love. So he says, imagine uh, you're on a ship and um, your wife falls off one side of the ship and you're standing in the middle of, of the deck, right? So on the one side of the ship, your wife's about to fall off and she does fall off. And on the other side, there's a stranger who falls off. Um, the utilitarian says that they have equal value. And so there is no good answer as to which one you should save. And Bernard Williams says that is abhorrent. Um, you must save your wife. Why? Because love and relationship counts. 
um, and utilitarianism doesn't capture that. And I wonder whether a similar kind of answer can't explain why we feel more for humans than we do for other animals in, an, in a justified way, right? So we can entertain relationships and enter into relationships with humans that we can't really with other types of animals. Um, not to say we can't enter into any types of relationships with them, but it's just different. It's similar to the difference between my wife and a stranger. I can still have coffee with a stranger, but I'm not going to have the same level of relationship. And Bernard Williams thinks that really what we need to do is capture um, in our actions, our choices of actions, um, that this weighting is important and valid and justified. There might be a further thing to buff up your argument, which is that um, if we start treating a certain class of human beings badly, um, even if that class of human beings doesn't warrant uh, a rights protection, it may lead to some other kind of problem, which is that we generally develop a, you know, a, a lack of dignity for human beings and that it could bleed over into those human beings that, uh, that should be afforded rights. And so we protect a class of people that don't warrant it, um, but we do so for some kind of other reason, which is there could be a slippery slope into you know, denigrating other human beings. Yeah, I know Kant uses that approach for animals as well, right? So he says we should not harm animals for the fun of it because that speaks poorly of our characters in a way that, firstly, we are not respecting our own dignity as human beings. We're not... Uh, respecting our own personhood but secondly we could then harm other people but i'm sure dustin's not going to like that reply it doesn't seem very plausible to me to think that um what's wrong with skinning the cat is entirely explained by its effect on you and your character it's got to have something to do with the cat itself um uh, even if the bad effect on your character is part of it you know um you you also i mean it gets a little tricky if we're talking about your uh your your own dignity and so you know yeah, but at, at least the part of it that's supposed to have to do with well mistreating animals might cause you to mistreat other human beings um you know suppose you were marooned on an island and you know that you're never going to be rescued and never uh encountering other human beings or something and you're bored and then start uh you know torturing animals that seems like it was totally wrong, even though uh, there's no realistic chance that it will affect how you treat other human beings because um, you're never going to meet any other human beings. Um, it, you might still think that this account could um, uh, explain that somehow by talking about its its effect on you know your your uh, mistreating yourself in some way by doing this, but. Of course, then you, you might be able to say that about eating factory farmed products and other, other ways that people are getting animals now. Um, so Dustin, I want to say thank you very much for an utterly thought-provoking conversation. Um, I, I have a suspicion, which is the reason why you've sort of got this youthful glaze in the middle of our video, was that you snuck <laughs> off for, um, for a steak and you know, <laughs> all that animal blood dripping down your throat just made you look 10 years younger. Um, I think that's the most reasonable explanation. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I guess there's no way to know. Uh, if, I, if I had done that, then I, surely I wouldn't admit it. So my, my, my saying otherwise isn't much evidence. Um, well, I thought it was really interesting when you said you're not a strict vegetarian. Um, hmm. and, I, and I wondered whether that was because of a principled, uh, a principled approach or just because it's like, you know, failure of will. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I do actually try to... Um, I mean, I, I, I try to do the thing that I mentioned briefly, which is 
donating enough to animal welfare charities that I think I'm doing good on balance. And I'm uncertain whether that is morally appropriate on balance or not. Um, I mean, I'm genuinely uncertain. I don't know. Um, it, it's also to a large extent, I think, a failure as well. Um, I think that, you know, we, we do have lots of pretty demanding obligations um, to help other people who are in need and so on. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, given, given just human weakness, we don't live up to all of those. Um, and so I, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm, I wonder if maybe it's just of a piece with you know, the fact that I don't donate as much money to help people as I could, you know, there are other things I do where I think that, you know, it might be plausible that there are other obligations that I'm living up to, even not, not living up to, even quite weighty. Um, you just sort of do, hope, hopefully do all right, um, even if, you know, but. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a quagmire. I think uh, all of us have to make a personal choice here and it's a very tough choice to make. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a relativist that, you know, that everyone needs a different choice, but, but I think, you know, weighing these calculations is very hard. Um, and, yeah, and there's I, no simple way to do it. Yeah. I, I, I do think though that, um, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, it's better to do less harm even if you still do some harm. And, um, yeah, I think that reducing intake of animal products is significantly easier than totally eliminating them um, and often might be better for you in other ways anyway. So um, I, certainly, I certainly think there's a pretty good case for the vast majority of people doing that. Um, so I have this one concern about the Meat Free Mondays crowd, which is imagine you're the, the serial killer uh, who kills a new person every day. Uh, and someone says, you know, this is a really horrible, wrong thing to do. Say, I've reflected on this and, and I think you're right. So I'm going to not kill people on Mondays. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I, think, I think that's uh, the right way to, to draw the line, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm going to advertise on Facebook as well. You know, I have a, you know, serial killer free Mondays. You know, I don't kill any innocent people. And, I, and you know, that's, that's the right balance. Yeah, I'm. I'm not saying that that's uh, morally permissible. I'm just saying it's <laughs> it's better. It's it, it morality is it's not better. a situation. It is where, better. Yeah. yeah, you might you might as well hang for a penny as hang for a pound. <laughs> you it's must admit to it's do, better. Mike. Do fewer wrong actions, even <laughs> if you still be tall, uh, as I guess everybody does. <laughs> Um, D uh, Dustin, thank you so much. This was a great conversation and oh, yeah. a fantastic topic. Uh, it's something that Mark and I have been arguing about for years because he's an active vegetarian, mm -hmm. um, he's a pescatarian, um, and, and I'm not. So uh, you can imagine the discussions we've had about this. Um, so so this, was, this was great to have a third party uh, to kind of uh, to, to moderate <laughs> <laughs> and provide some fantastic information. So thank you, Dustin. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much for having me on.